Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I am sharing some updates on what's going on in my beehives, a little talk about my honey harvest, an update on my broody hen, and then I'll be talking about English Orpingtons, a supremely fluffy and sweet-natured heritage breed of chicken. But first, I'd like to make a quick announcement. I will be taking September completely off from the podcast. There will be no new episodes, no repos. It's a complete hiatus. There is some possibility that I might end up taking October off as well, but I don't foresee that happening at this time. I'll still be available on Instagram and Facebook and you are always welcome to contact me over there. You can also reach out to me through my website or you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. So there will be no episodes whatsoever for September. I'm taking that month off. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's do some homestead updates. We've had really a mixed bag when it comes to weather. It's been very hot. So we've been up in the 90s a lot of the time. We've had really high humidity, which is not super common for this area of Ohio. And for a few days, we had extremely heavy rain that caused a number of my tomatoes to literally burst open on the vine. And some of those tomato plants haven't really recovered from all that wet weather. I'm not sure if it is blight, but that's what it looks like. And um, I will say, though, that despite some damage that these plants took, I'm still getting bountiful harvests from my cherry tomato plants, which is delightful. And even though I have had issues with these plants bursting out and over their cages and over their um, support... I would say that overall this year for tomatoes has been a huge success and I also now have a better idea of what I need to set up for next year to avoid these kind of pitfalls. Speaking of successes, I finally harvested actual corn. It was not a huge amount, about six ears all told, but this is a massive improvement over last year's two to three very sad little cobs that was so tough that I just gave them to the chickens. They weren't really edible for people. So it's been an absolute pleasure to harvest and eat fresh corn that I grew myself. And I think I'm going to expand the bed again next year in the hopes of an even better harvest. I've also been harvesting pears. So we have two pear trees on our property right next to the apiary. And they were here when we bought the place. They'd obviously been here for a while. Now, I don't really like pears, but I wanted to keep these trees in good shape. And so I did prune them last year as I felt that they were getting kind of overgrown and also a little unbalanced. And I must have done something right because the pears they're producing this year are much larger and more attractive than I've seen previously. And I really couldn't bear to let them go to waste, so I've been bringing them in once they're ripe. My original plan was to cut them up for the chickens and then give the rest away to neighbours and friends, but I had some suggestions over on Instagram to make pear sauce and pear alcohol. So I'm going to be looking into recipes for those ideas and we'll see what I can do. I think it will be fun to experiment. Now, I can't remember if I mentioned this way back when, but my husband and I brought home some 
froglets is what I've been calling them. They are small horned frog hybrids called, often called Pac-Man frogs. And we brought them home a couple of months ago. Now, we've had really, really bad luck keeping amphibians alive for some reason. We have gone through like chemicals in the house, um, like personal body products that we've used if we thought maybe it was the water and that's kind of what we settled on particularly when we lived actually in the city of Akron which has a number of issues with their water and their sewer and all this kind of stuff but anyway so we feel like we might have narrowed down that the problems we were having keeping amphibians alive was due to the water that we were using And now that we're on well water, we decided to risk it for a biscuit and try again. So when we brought these little froglets home, they were very, very young. It looked like they had just metamorphosed into their little froggy shape. So they had a little pointy tushy where their tail had been from when they were tadpoles. And so I was very worried about them. You know, they're very delicate at this age. Uh, But so far, things are actually going really, really well. Um, They're eating almost everything we put in front of them and they have noticeably grown. I'm going to throw a picture up on my blog to show the difference. And so fingers crossed that we have finally figured this out and that now that we're on a different water source, amphibians will be safe here, safe and happy. My husband's carpet python babies are now ready for sale and we've actually moved a few onto their new homes already. I just love these guys. So I don't handle them because they're extremely aggressive at this age. Jungle carpet pythons are quite funny because as babies, they're incredibly bitey and they tend to be much plainer in appearance. So instead of that really bright yellow and black, they're a bit more sort of muddy, browny yellow with some black. But as they get older, they get you know, less aggressive with proper handling and their colors really start to pop. But I have to admit this batch of babies are already very prettily colored and I'm just super impressed with them. And so I'm very excited to see what becomes of them in future. I know a couple have been picked up by other breeders. So fingers crossed, you know, our bloodlines are getting out there and hopefully we can keep these healthy babies and their lineage going. Speaking of other baby reptiles, the baby pink tongue skinks that we had imported from Germany are doing really, really well. Even the runt seems to have turned a corner and he's beginning to catch up to his or her siblings. So he at one point was a mere two grams and he just weighed in at eight grams, which is a really big gain. And I'm very, very pleased. And I think I can probably stop worrying about him quite as much. The larger two are really defensive and huffy. Even for this species, it's not uncommon for baby skinks to be very defensive because they feel vulnerable. But they're incredibly huffy and they will bite me quite a lot when I'm trying to move them. But I'm pretty confident that they're going to calm down as they get larger. It's usually what I've seen. I've had a couple of babies before that were very, very bitey when they were small and extremely docile and sweet tempered the minute they turned like six months old. So I'm just going to keep working with them, keep their stress levels low. And I'm really excited to see what they turn into. The two larger ones are starting to get their adult colouring. So that's very exciting to see develop. I also really need to start thinking about the three skinks that I held back from my 2020 litter. 
I just can't decide what to do with them. I know that one of the three is definitely a male and I really love his pattern and coloring. So he's gonna stay. Of the remaining two, one is leaning female in appearance and behavior and the other is leaning male, but I'm not 100% about either of those. And the thing is, I don't need two males, but if they were both females, I actually would like to keep both of them. So since we have the space right now, um, in part because we've been investing in this really heavy duty shelving system. So like each shelf can hold something like 250 to 400 pounds or something ridiculous. We've been stacking our enclosures to make more floor space available. And so since we have them, we have the space, I have the extra cages. I'm just going to hold on to them for a little bit longer. Hopefully I can figure out if they are male or female and then I'll make a decision from there. As for hive updates, in episode 50, I mentioned how varroa mite levels were really low in my colonies, but that I had had a problem with my two nucleus colonies that I had only just sized up into 10 frame Langstroths and merged with my queenless split, how they were targeted really badly by robber bees. And It was so bad that I was worried the queens of those two colonies might have been killed in the skirmish. And I didn't want to go in and check whether they were still alive because I would have to open up the hive and that would make them vulnerable to the robbers again. So I really just had to wait and see and hope for the best. I was finally able to safely get into those colonies last week and I was able to confirm that both queens survived. So I'm very relieved they are alive. But they, the colonies were hit extremely hard by the robber bees. One of the colonies has been reduced to literally just three frames of brood eggs and a smattering of food. All the other frames in that hive were picked clean and the wax is all ragged from where the robbers just ripped everything open. I've never seen anything like it before. And then the other colony that was hit is doing a little better. They have six frames, including one full frame of honey. So I'm not quite as worried about them. But basically what I've been doing since I confirmed that both had living and still laying queens is I've just been heavily feeding these colonies in the hope that I can build them up strong enough before winter hits. Really worst case scenario, I would have to choose one of the queens to cull and I could merge the two colonies together before winter, but I'm hoping I can avoid that if I just feed, 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 feed. Now my overwinter colony, which is the Saskatraz Ohio genetic genetic mix, and I named the queen Kaliak, that's my strongest colony. And that's really what I would expect to see in a second year colony. You know, they got through that first winter, so they start building up really strong. Now they are low on honey because we have been in this nectar dearth for a while now. And in response to that, the queen's egg production has slowed down. But overall, the population is booming. It's my most numerous, well-populated colony. And they're doing well enough that they even have a few drone bees hanging around. Whereas my smaller colonies have already kicked all of the boys out. The drones have been pulled out already so that they don't have to feed them. And... I basically just decided that all of the colonies, regardless of their size, will be fed at this time. You know, the dearth is going on for a while. We have probably a couple more weeks for the next, for the full nectar flow. And so I would rather give them the option of sugar syrup for them to use if they need it than for them not to have it. 
the nucleus colony that I purchased this year from Eula Honeybees, which is an Ohio queen who I named Olwen, is my second strongest of the Langstroth colonies. So they had a strong start because, you know, uh, Emily really knows her stuff. She produces really nice bees, good nukes. So they had that strong start and they're holding really steady, even in the face of this nectar dearth. And I was really surprised to find that they're actually drawing a little wax still, despite the heat and the lateness in the season. So again, put some sugar syrup in for them. Um, it gives them some support during the dearth and it will also help with the wax build if they continue in that area. Now, for future reference, I renumbered my hive since the nucleus colonies have now sized up. So for future reference, when I talk about hive number one, that's my overwintered Saskatraz, Ohio queen, Kaliak. Hive number two is the purchased nuke with an Ohio queen, which is Olwen. Hive number three was nucleus number one, which was made from the frames of hive number one. And I called that queen Flora. And hive number four was nucleus number two, also made from eggs from hive number one. And I've named that queen Melisse. Now, that leaves my top bar hive colony, which continues to do really well. Well, I think it does. So here's my dilemma. Wax production has slowed down dramatically, which is completely expected for this time of year, particularly because of the nectar dearth that we've had. So they have 14 bars of comb. And I'm worried about that because this is a 32 bar hive. So that's not even half of all the bars being used yet. And that worries me that they're not going to have enough storage space for winter honey. Now they are backfilling as egg laying slows down. But here's the thing. This is why I'm confused. I feel like they don't have enough of the comb. But they obviously feel strong because not only do they still have drones in the colonies, they haven't kicked the boys out, but they're still actually producing drones. The queen is still laying some drone eggs. And that means the colony feels strong. They wouldn't be doing that if they were feeling that pinch of oncoming scarcity. And so that is making me kind of hopeful that they know more than I do, obviously, they are bees, they know how to be bees. And I'm kind of optimistic that, again, if I offer them some syrup right now, that could hold them over, maybe help them build up even stronger until our full nectar flow starts. Now, the syrup I'm offering is 2-1, that's sugar to water, which is what's recommended for full. Now, I don't know if this is considered early to feed. I think that's really dependent on the weather and local climate. My thinking here is that 2-1 syrup requires less water to be removed to be made into honey, which means less work for my bees, which seems like a big benefit right now. Overall, mite testing has been extremely heartening so far. This time last year, my mite levels were exploding and I had a real hardship on my hands. It was incredibly diff difficult to get those levels under control and it's part of why I'm sure I lost so many colonies over winter. But so far, all my colonies have had really low levels. I'm talking three to four mites per 300 bees. And the only exception to this is my top bar colony. So 
it's actually kind of interesting to note that at the beginning of August, they had a mite count of one mite to 300 bees, which is incredibly low. But as of two days ago, they now have a mite level of 11 mites to 300 bees, which means they do need to treat this colony. And looking at this mite level and looking at how many drones they have, it it makes sense. So as I've talked about before, and if you listen to my repost of my Varroa mites episode, Varroa mites prefer drone brood over worker brood because there's more space for them and they can reproduce more. They can produce more offspring. And if this colony is still raising the drones while the others have long since stopped, then it makes sense that there could be a higher mite count because there's better... Um, I almost want to say bedding, but it's really better food, better space for the mites to breed. Now, because this is a top bar hive, when looking at treatment options, I have to consider how they work. So treatments that go between frames are often designed for um, Langstroth, for horizontal hives, or things like formic acid. It's heavier than air, so it needs to go above 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 (laughs) above the hive um but that's not really possible with a top bar because a top bar hive the hives will touch and they form like a ceiling and it's not going to be able to penetrate through the wood now some people have said they've had success putting the forming acid strips on the bottom but I'm just concerned that because it is heavier than air that I would just be wasting formic acid strips. So what I decided to do, because most places recommend it for top bars, is oxalic acid treatment using the dribble method. And the dribble method is exactly what it sounds like. You make a water solution with the oxalic acid and sugar. So it's a syrup with the oxalic acid in it. And using a syringe, you literally dribble it down the seams of the frame. So you gently move the frames apart and then you dribble uh, two to five milliliters for each frame. And it's a maximum colony dosage of 50 milliliters total. So if you are uh, treating one colony, you don't use more than 50 milliliters of the solution. Now I've never done this before, So I was very, very nervous and um, it took me a little bit to really get the hang of uh, accurate amounts being used for each frame, but I did it. And so um, I will say that there was no real response from the bees. They didn't all start running away or freaking out um, while I was applying. And then 10 minutes after, I also didn't see any kind of change in their behavior, which I'm going to take as a good sign. And I'll be checking the bottom board of this colony of this hive for um, mites, dead mites every few days to see how things are going. And then in two weeks from the the period of treatment, I will check them again to make sure the levels have dropped. The downside with oxalic acid is it can't penetrate brood cells. So this is a good time of year to apply it because right now with the nectar dearth, brood production is way, way down. They're not in that point where they're getting all of their winter bees ready. So it's a good time to treat, but there is some brood in there. So potentially there are some Varroa that are being protected by those wax cappings from the oxalic acid. So I figure I will check again in two weeks. If the levels are still high, I will repeat the treatment. And hopefully at that point, 
I will get all of those nasty little buggers and I will get to see a lovely low mites level as we move further into fall. Now I did take kind of a calculated risk uh, with my two smallest colonies, the ones that were robbed really badly. Because as much as I know that robbing can definitely introduce varroa mites, I really just feel that these colonies are too small for me to take the 300 bees to do the mite test. I would actually much rather give them um, the full period of August to start building up again, particularly with the support that I'm giving them with the sugar syrup. And then I will test them early next month instead. So I'm not giving them a long break. They're just having the August mite test that I would usually do. I'm going to skip just for this month and I'll do it again next month. And like I said, it's a calculated risk. This could be the wrong decision, but I'm hopeful that um, it's the right one and it's going to pay off. On the plus side, even though robbers can introduce Varroa, both of these colonies are very low on brood, particularly capped brood right now. So that plays in my favor. Okay, so I want to move on for a second. And I'm going to share some news about what happened with my broody hen cheddar and i want to say up front that this update doesn't have a happy ending is actually quite upsetting and please be aware that i will be discussing animal death for the next couple of minutes including emergency euthanasia at home so you can skip ahead if you don't want to hear that i'm going to put a warning in the episode description notes with a timestamp so you can jump ahead to where I let you know I have stopped talking about all of this okay so if you're sticking around then um, here's my update I mentioned in episode 50 that Cheddar my Jersey giant rescue hen had gone broody and that I was leaving her to it I was going to let her raise her own young Well, Cheddar continued to sit on her eggs and she actually seemed to be doing really well. So I actually did scoop her up at one point um, and I could tell that she had lost weight, which is normal, but she wasn't too thin. She wasn't looking too scraggly. So I felt that it was okay to let her keep sitting. On Monday, August 23rd, I went out in the morning to check on all my girls and I heard the sweet little peeps of a newly hatched chick. Sadly, I also found a dead chick at the same time and it had been pushed out of the nest now when I picked it up I couldn't see anything wrong with it it appeared to be perfectly formed there were no signs of wounds or obvious deformities so I suspect what happened is that it died during the hatching phase which I have read is relatively common and that cheddar then kind of kicked the dead body out of the nest to keep that area clean so I you know, sadly disposed of that little body. But I did take great delight in listening to the surviving chick who sounded very strong. Cheddar was extremely defensive of the baby, which is a good sign. It's totally normal. But I was able to get her to stand up long enough for me to see that the chick was still a little damp from hatching. So it obviously just recently emerged and was a beautiful black and yellow fluffy little cutie pie. Now, since Cheddar was being so defensive, I decided to leave her be because she was also sitting on other eggs, which would be due to hatch. I then left for the morning and I went back to check on the new mama and the chick around 1 p.m. And immediately when I opened the coop, I knew that something terrible had happened. So the nest box that she was in was askew and I could see the chick lying prone on the ground. 
Um, I went to pick it up and there was blood and other fluids all over it. Um, I actually thought it was dead, but when I picked it up, it was breathing and occasionally cheeping. And honestly, it's one of the most heartbreaking things that I've ever seen. So one look at the situation and I saw, I could see what had happened. Um, Cheddar had been in the nest box with her chick and her eggs and Cracker, my bitchy white leghorn, had wanted to go into the nest box to lay and had tried to force Cheddar out. And during this fighting between the two, I think that they stepped all over the chick. And because it was so young and so delicate that its skin had torn open. And worst of all, it was partly disemboweled, but still alive. So looking at this situation, it was pretty clear to me that there was nothing I could do. But part of me was really, really hoping that I could save the baby. So I called my husband and explained what had happened. I sent him pictures of what I was looking at. And he confirmed that the kindest thing I could do was to euthanize. And so um, that's what I did. And it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. And I'm still really upset about it. When I opened the coop and I saw the chick looking like that, um, I I think I yelled something like, cracker, you hateful bitch, what have you done? And then I snatched up the baby and I was so angry at her for being a chicken. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing, you know, it's so impossible to stay mad at animals because they're just animals. They're doing their animal things. Um, and this was a risk that I was aware of. I had tried to move Cheddar and her nest. I think I talked about it. I moved her into the run. I crated her with her eggs and the nest box, as a lot of things recommend, to keep the other hens away from the eggs and then eventually to keep them away from her chicks. But the minute I moved Cheddar, she completely rejected the eggs and she was so distressed, um, trying to squeeze through the bars, flying into the roof of the crate, um, just constantly screaming and freaking out that I decided that it wasn't worth it, that um, the stress on her was too much and that also potentially the um, developing embryos were going to die if she didn't start sitting on the eggs again. So I said, okay... I'll let her raise them in the main coop because there's only three other hens. And I was hoping that it would be okay. And again, when I found her with the chick, I had that that thought of I should probably move her. But then I was worried that if I moved her, she wouldn't just reject the remaining eggs that maybe she'd even reject the chick. And I don't have a setup inside for the chick. I could probably have handled it for a day or so, but it just wasn't the best situation Um, And so I was hoping that I could leave her to it. And based on how fierce she was with me, when I tried to look at the chick, I was, I felt kind of confident that she would be able to protect the baby and that it would be okay. Um, But it wasn't, it wasn't okay. So um, after euthanizing the baby, I um, did move Cheddar and her remaining eggs and I put her in the special needs coop with Meatbutt and Agatha. So only Meatbutt is still laying very, very rarely and she always uses the same corner of the coop. So I put Cheddar's covered nest box actually in the run away from that area. And Agatha doesn't lay at all anymore. So I wasn't worried that she would try and sit on the eggs or try and get in there or anything like that. But as before, the minute that I moved her and the eggs, Cheddar rejected the nest. Um, I actually gave her two full days before I 
let her out to join the main flock again, at which point I had to dispose of the eggs as um, they were all cold at this point and um, couldn't be saved. And I did, out of curiosity, crack all of them open to see where they were. And all of them were fertile. And um, a good 60% of them were actually pretty far along. Um, So that was really, really sad. And um, the embryos had died because she wouldn't sit on them. So I disposed of them. And um, after those two days of refusing to sit, it broke her broodiness. She went back to the main flock. She's been back to normal. Uh, She's eating well again, drinking normally. She'll probably start gaining weight back. I haven't returned the ground nest box because I'm worried that that might trigger the broodiness again. So right now they have their main nest boxes, which are on like raised up on the side of the coop and no ground nest boxes for a while. So that's all my sadness. And what have I learned from this? What will I do differently in future? Well, first, my recommendation to you, if you want to raise chicks, is to incubate them indoors. You can fully control the situation that way. There are a number of incubators available on the market now, and with some, they're actually very affordable. I think so. So if you ever really want to hatch eggs, whether from your chickens or if you purchase them from a hatchery or another farmer, I would highly recommend incubating them yourself. Second, if I ever have another broody hen and I decide to let her sit on the eggs, which right now I probably wouldn't, here is what I would do. The minute, the very, very first day that a broody hen refuses to move from the eggs, she is going to be moved to the quarantine coop. I'm not going to wait for her to collect a full clutch. I will move her the minute I see that she's gone broody. And I'm hoping that by moving her so early in the process, she will be less likely to reject the new location. I can always collect fertile eggs to put under her, but clearly it is vitally important to isolate a broody hen as soon as possible. If moving her to the quarantine coop breaks her of her broodiness, then that's fine. No chicks. But clearly I cannot allow a broody to raise her young around other hens without risk risking another chick dying so I consider this a lesson very harshly learned and I will not be making the same mistake again so with that sadness out of the way I actually want to talk about something happier I don't I don't want to be, be all like doom and gloom and um, leave us all feeling a bit sad about how cruel chickens can be So I want to talk about something different. I'm going to talk about what I've been jokingly calling Operation Pullets. And specifically, I want to talk about English Orpingtons. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen that my Operation Pullets, which is basically just me getting pullets, went into action on Wednesday, August 18th, and I brought home six adorable new babies. Now, originally I planned to purchase from my local hatchery, but when I was ready, when I had my quarantine coop up, and I predator-proofed it, they mainly just had white leghorns and barred rocks available, and neither of those breeds are really my favourites. Cracker, my white leghorn, is a bitch. She's always been a bitch, and I suspect she always will be, so I wasn't really looking for more leghorns. And I like barred rocks okay, but they're not my favourite in terms of appearance or the colour of their eggs. 
Now my first hens, they're all a mixture of rescues and barnyard mixes from a local farmer. And so this time I really, really wanted to choose the breeds of my new flock. You know, I wanted to be able to say like, that one's an Easter egger, that one's a Brahma, that one's a Wyandotte or whatever. And so I reached out to some local people and I was considering a mix of Easter eggers and Brahmas. Um, and then I was offered a couple of other breeds as well. But while I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted, I came across a Craigslist ad for English Orpingtons. Now, I've always been a huge fan of this breed, both just because they're an English heritage bird and that really appeals to me and because they are extremely attractive. They are large bodied chickens and supremely fluffy. They also come in a variety of colours, so you can have quite the varied, beautiful flock. And I actually personally purchased um, one of each colour that the breeder had available. So I have a black, a blue, a red, a lavender, a lavender mottled and a white splash. Now, the woman I purchased them from actually brought her original breeding flock of purebred Orpingtons over from England in 2012, and she's been producing them ever since. Um, her husband and her used to actually ship all over the US as quite a large operation, but now they've retired and they've scaled things down and she just has a few clutches a year and sells them locally. Um, her birds are really just gorgeous, and I actually drove... Um, about an hour to meet her because I was just so excited to get these girls. Now the pullets are quite skittish but they're also really curious. I will admit that I was surprised by just how young they seem. I really thought they would be leaning more towards an adult hen than a chick but they're very noisy like a chick you know lots of peep 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 peeps noise um they're kind of easily distracted you know they'll chase flies uh they eat so much every day it's incredible and so I guess the skittishness is because they're babies they're really really young so they do startle when I move around the coop but they're also starting to associate me with food so they're kind of slowly gaining more confidence I am optimistic that if I keep working with them, they will eventually tame up. English Orpingtons are known to be a docile, friendly breed. Now, the pullets are honestly eating me out in house and home. It's incredible how much they eat compared to full-grown hens. It's really fun to just watch them chow down every morning. I also put a dust bath in for them and they love it. So I like to just sit and watch them in the dust bath. And I'll be waiting until they are full-sized uh, before I even start introducing them to the main flock because I want to try and make that as smooth as possible and I don't want them to be bullied. On the plus side... Um, I mean, it's not really great for quarantining, but my free ranging flock will come and investigate that coop, like kind of get close and look in on the girls. So they're already kind of familiar with the fact that the pullets are here. And I'm hoping that's going to help when we finally get to the point where I can mix them together. 
So English Orpingtons are a heritage breed, as I said, which basically means that they've been around for a really, really long time. So we're talking like centuries. And they've remained almost entirely unchanged since their original creation. That's sort of what a heritage breed means. And some other heritage breeds of chickens include Rhode Island Reds, which I feel like a lot of people are familiar with, Delawares and Plymouth Rocks. The English Orpington was actually created in the 1880s in the village of Orpington in Kent, England by William Cook and his unnamed daughter. Now, at this time, dual purpose chicken breeds were really gaining popularity in America, but they weren't really taking hold in England because these breeds had yellow skin. And in Britain at the time, it was um, the norm for meat birds to have white skin this was seen as more desirable and it was just considered normal and so the yellow skin of these meat meat birds or dual purpose birds was off-putting so in response to this William Cook decided that he was going to make a dual purpose bird with white skin and he did just that by breeding black Menorcas with black Plymouth rocks and then breeding their offspring to clean-legged Langshans. And the result was the black English Orpington, a sweet-natured breed that produced a good-sized carcass for the table and was also a prolific egg layer. William Cook introduced this breed to the poultry world in 1886 at the Crystal Palace Poultry Show in England, where his black Orpington pullet won the grand prize. After this, the Orpington grew in popularity and its sweet nature and appealing fluffiness led to it being hugely popular in the show ring. And as a result, many breeders started to focus on form over function and so egg laying declined somewhat. Today, the English Orpington is considered a good layer, but it's not as prolific as, say, a production breed. And the eggs they produce are large, light to dark brown eggs. The English Orpington is known for being especially winter hardy and for laying somewhat through the colder months. As I mentioned before, it's supremely fluffy and full bodied, attractive to the eye with an almost spherical appearance due to the layout of their feathers. Breeding for show also led to new colours being introduced. So today you can find the English Orpington in lavender, black, blue, red, white, buff and mottled as well as something called Splash. Although only the buff, black, white and blue are currently recognised by the American Poultry Association. A Bantam, or small miniature version, has also been developed. A standard male Orpington weighs about 10 pounds, or 4.5 kilograms, with hens weighing in at about 8 pounds, or 3.6 kilograms, while the Bantams weigh a mere 38 ounces, or 1.1 kilograms for the males, and 34 ounces, or 965 grams for the hens. Those are really itty-bitty. Now, the English Orpingtons are prone to broodiness, and it's said that they make excellent mothers. So that's a blessing for anyone who wants a self-sustaining flock. So if you're looking for a flock that will raise its own chicks for you, the English Orpington might be a good option. Now, at one time, um, the English Orpington was considered at risk, particularly here in the US, where it was not quite as popular as it was in its native motherland. But it no longer is. So it actually graduated from the Livestock Conservancy's watch list in 2016. 
And so you do have a good shot of finding Orpingtons. Now, probably what you're most familiar with is the buff Orpington. And this is an English Orpington in the buff color. Um, it's much more common in the US and it has all the good things about what we love about English Orpingtons. It has that. So if you see a buff Orpington or if you have a buff Orpington, you actually have a lovely British heritage chicken. And that's really all I have for you this week, this episode. I know it's a little short, but um, I guess, you know, with the nectar dearth and this heat and humidity, I just don't have a huge amount to report. The hives are chugging on as best they can. I have a really hard time being in the garden, but I'm trying to keep things in line as much as I can until this awful humid weather goes away and I can bear to be outside again. So it seems as if um, it was just yesterday sometimes that I started this podcast, but actually September 5th will be my second anniversary of the pod. And it's really hard to believe that it's been two whole years. Um, And so I guess I'm going to look at this month I'm taking off as a gift to myself. Um, It's going to give me a chance to reset and recharge. And so just as a reminder, that is all of next month, all of September, there will be no new episodes, no reposts, nothing. It's going to be radio silence until October. I just want to say how much I appreciate you all so much for listening and then following along with me over these two years as I dig deep into chicken keeping, beekeeping and homesteading. I really value the relationships that I formed with people through this podcast, through Instagram. I love following along with your own journeys and I do encourage you, please reach out to me on Insta or Facebook or by email. Um, I love to have a good chat and to find out what you're doing. And I'm also happy to answer any questions as best I can. So if you're a new beekeeper or if you're new to chickens and you have any concerns or you want just someone to kind of, you know, bounce some ideas off of, I am always available. And you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney, all one word, at gmail.com. I hope things are going well for you. I hope you're staying safe. And I will be back to speak to you all again in October. So please take care of yourselves. And as always hug your hands, and then wash your hands. Cheers.